Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I'm your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, which are very high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. And to that end, on today's podcast, I had a great conversation with Ted Jenkin. Ted is a serial entrepreneur. He is the CEO of Oxygen Financial, which is a great case study in how to create uh, niche target marketing. But he's also a partner in ESL Advisors, uh, leadership of the Atlanta class of 2023. He's a national TV personality and talks about money, finance. He's very active on YouTube uh, in various aspects of social media. And in this episode, we discussed unlocking financial impact and legacy. And what that really means is we talked about what it looks like to have a partial sale of your business. As a financial professional, how you can start to de-risk and achieve a business transition and all of the elements that go into that because Ted has cracked the code. He's got a process on that. He represents advisors who are uh, selling all of a business or partial business. It's just such a great skill set and a great process he's got. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. And if you do like it, please like and share and then tell your colleagues. And as always, I just invite you, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to hear on this podcast down the road, just let us know. Thanks for listening. Well, I am brimming with enthusiasm because I'm about to have a, just another stellar conversation with Ted Jenkin. For those of you who don't know, Ted is a returning guest on the Always On podcast, one of our most popular and just in terms of engagement and follow-up. And again, to recap, again, if you're, if you're just getting to know Ted, one of the most innovative financial professionals I have ever met in my close to 30 years working in this community. We'll get more into that a little bit later on. But also, ahead of the curve in terms of trends, in terms of how the industry is evolving and how he represents re represents himself in the marketplace, and beyond an early adopter in terms of acting on specific opportunities that exist in the business. Ted, how are you doing? Thanks for being here. It's great. <clears throat> it's a great day. <laughs> that it is. I, I'm, I'm so excited about what's in store for this industry and what's in store for humanity, frankly, over the course of the, of the next uh, months and years. I don't think there'll be a better time to be a financial professional. I don't think there'll be a better time to be alive. That's just my optimism and my interpretation of events. But on a more granular level, I do want to speak to Ted's credibility around this conversation, because there are some things in life you cannot learn in a simulator. Uh, you've they're experiential and so credibility speaks to not just wisdom but also just how you conduct yourself and the actions you take so again your foundation is that you are a lifelong entrepreneur and you built a very successful financial services business which is a great starting point but then you entered in, you did incredible research and entered into a sell and stay situation where you took some chips off the table and de-risked. You engineered a great exit. And by that, I mean a liquidity event. You monetized. I'm going to assume that greatly exceeded your expectations, but also activated a, a, an immense rejuvenation. Uh, in terms of your ability. So can we start there? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> what a great feeling to wake up in the morning and be able to say, if I don't want to work again, I don't have to work again. And it's the thing we dream about, Duncan, for our clients. They say, help me figure out how to make work optional one day. And the moment I did my transaction, work became optional for me. And uh, it's interesting because Advisors don't always think about all the passions that they want to pursue because they're doing their day job of being a financial advisor. Once I made my transaction, uh, I could continue to do some things in the business. As you mentioned, I did a, a sell and stay, but 
it really opened up the doors for me too to to exercise my entrepreneurial muscles even more. Well, and I've seen that full spectrum. I've seen where the safety net of financial independence can become a bit of a hammock. And fair enough. I mean, some people want to go out and golf and travel and live their best life. And that's great. And then I've seen the other side where that work optional lifestyle actually activated a new level of purpose and uh, motivation, which is the case uh, with you. Oh, yeah. But then after the dust settled on that, uh, you went deeper into your business. You you went into expanding your entrepreneurial pursuits, one of which included the calling of helping financial advisors navigate it for themselves. And one of the things that we've we both noticed, not just with business owners in general, but with these lifelong planners, financial advisors, is that they tend to kick the can down the road around their continuity and succession plan and those dynastic issues, but also what it means. Uh, they, they don't have a plan to monetize fully and then what the rest of their life would look like. So you and your team developed an intellectual property, a process to help advisors get around that and start to work on that. And now you've got uh, a vast community of advisors that have engaged you and your team to do that. And you've got a pipeline that's bursting. And from that, in our conversations offline, you've started to identify these various scenarios where it wasn't a one size fits all of square peg and a round hole. The idea of unlocking financial impact and legacy took on different shapes for different individuals. And that's where I'd like to go with this conversation is just to talk about the concept of a partial sale uh, as part of the sell and stay dynamic and and what are some of the other uh, scenarios uh, an advisor can look at. So, yeah, I, let me just say first to advisors that this myth that because the Fed has raised interest rates 500 basis points that it's dramatically impacted the buying and selling market is a complete myth. Duncan, I have never seen more capital and uh, it being influxed into our marketplace to buy financial services practices. So the fact that interest rates have gone up, don't let anybody fool you that this is decreased multiples. It's decreased the opportunity to sell your business because that's that's completely unfactual. And I want to say that uh, before I get into the partial sales, that the second thing I continue to see, Duncan, and I know that you coach a lot of advisors, is that if you don't get two things in place, number one, your P&L statements, meaning that you really have your arms around the profit and loss statements in your business and do it in a professional way, you're going to have a problem when you want to maximize your multiples and minimize your stress. Number two, legal agreements. Almost every practice I see that's a multi-million dollar producer tends not to be an all-employee business, meaning that you have a lead advisor, a senior advisor, whatever you want to call it, and often the junior advisors are 1099 contractors that sit inside of the practice. When you want to sell that business to a company that's going to pay you a lot of money, they're going to ask you, well, do the 1099 contractors own their clients or do you own the clients? Well, I think everybody knows I own the clients. No, 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 no. Legally, who owns the clients? And if you don't have your legal structure in place, it is going to cause you more than one jug of Pepto-Bismol when you sell your practice. It is going to be really problematic. So I just, I want to comment on just those two things before we do the partial sale, because when you're building your business and you recruit people in or you bring in junior advisors, if you don't build it with purpose and intent, not only in, on all the practice management stuff that you coach on, but the legal and financial piece of it, you're never going to intrinsically maximize the multiples in your business. You're just not. Okay. So I'm glad you went there. And actually, you prompted <laughs> me to think for everybody listening in, make sure at a minimum you follow Ted on LinkedIn. Uh, it's an essential follow. He's very active in a multitude of different themes, but you've got to stay in contact with uh, Ted Jenkins on LinkedIn, number one. Number two, 
visit sellyouraum.com to just understand how robust this process is that Ted has built out. Because all the things you just said that there and many more have been fully built out. Like you've got checklists, you've got a to-do list, all the different things a financial professional needs to do to strengthen their position. Because your comment, and this has been validated, your comment about rates, what the raising rates does, among many other things, is rewards those who have the strongest case, the strongest business. I was talking to a financial advisor, this is about a month ago now, and uh, he was saying that there is so much money on the sidelines that is now being activated. And he, he used the term, because of inflation, he said, there are a lot of people that don't want to see their ice cream melt. <laughs> the, the depreciating value of the cash, they want to buy assets but they're being very picky. They're cherry picking and 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 acting on the business that have the strongest position. And that's exactly what you're talking about there, right? Yeah. I mean, you have to go into this kind of at least, you know, obviously there's got to be a culture fit, but you've got to know what you're willing to give up and what you're not. Um, what I mean by that is that, um, and, and we mentioned this, I think I'm probably a prior prior podcast. It's like, do you still want to be rep as portfolio manager or are you willing to outsource that money? I think you should be outsourcing it anyway, but even so, does that really matter to you? You might think you have the secret sauce, but most of you are not beating the S&P 500. I know it's probably fun for yeah. you and you look at charts and all that other stuff, but it, it's it's not the secret sauce. And you may have a brand and that brand you may think is the secret sauce, but truth be told, 99% of financial advisors, your brand isn't a secret sauce. You're not on every billboard in town. You're not on TV every day. You know, asking random strangers if they know Cornerstone Wealth Management, the odds are they don't. But you've got to be clear about what you're doing and also clear about how you're going to communicate things with everyone in your company. A lot of advisors are like, well, I'll just do this and then I'll let everybody know at the last minute. And it's like, You've got to be smart. Remember, you've got to be a leader in this when you're selling your business. And it's just not things, Duncan, that we're trained on. You know, we're trained on how to bring in assets and do financial planning and asset allocation and tax work. And you help them with practice management. But we're not, we're not, how many of you have ever sold a business before? The odds are you haven't. And you can say, well, I've helped clients before. Have you? Have you brokered a business? Have you had to negotiate a letter of interest? Have you had to go through due diligence? The odds are you haven't. You might have given some sideline coach type advice, but it's not real advice. Most advisors. So I just say that not to be mean or condescending in any way, but to say when you want to get millions of dollars, you want somebody in your corner, just like your clients should have somebody in their corner when they sell their business. And that's probably why so many people do kick that can down the road is because it's abstract and it's so big. So they just say, okay, I'm just going to put my head down and, and grind it out and do my job. So you've got all the tools and templates, I know you do, to help people sort of progress yes. through that, to remove any hair and just to strengthen their case and make sure that they, when that moment of truth comes, where they're having a conversation or you're having the conversation on their behalf, that they're in the driver's seat. Now, the other thing... It's interesting. I spoke with Chris Jepson yesterday about how the industry is evolving. And we got we landed on AI and yeah. how some people are a little freaked out about AI and how it's going to further commoditize the financial professional and how other advisors, their mindset is they're embracing AI. Like, for example, they're using AI to capture conversations they have with clients for, you know, after a strategy and tactical meeting, here's what we talked about. It's a nice summary. Here's what we talked about on a phone call, just KYC and then beyond. But also how automation and technology is creating liberation for the advisor. Like more and more advisors to varying degrees are getting out of the asset management business, that secret sauce you're talking about, to go deeper because AI will never have EI, the emotional intelligence. Right. So they're going deeper into their business, deeper into their client relationships without working any harder. I mean, these are some of the benefits of the, the path that we're on and the era that we're in right now. But 
I, I do want to go deeper into some of the, you know, when you get into the weeds yeah. with an advisor to prepare them for the moment of truth, what are some of those things that you're working <clears throat> on with them? Yeah. So let, let's go through this example because we we were going to talk a little bit about this idea of a partial sale, right? Which is that you're an advisor right now and you do $2 million of revenue. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't know when I want to exit the business exactly. I'm not ready to become an employee today and sell all of my business, but I wouldn't mind de-risking and potentially having a partner that could accelerate my own net worth by offloading part of my business. And there's a multitude of models, but let me just give you an example of one that I see today. So you do $2 million of revenue and you wanna sell part of it. A lot of companies will buy between 10 and 25% of your revenue. So let's say they buy 25% of your revenue in this case, or they buy a a half million dollars of your revenue. The first point of negotiation will be, how much of a multiple am I gonna get on the partial sale of my business? Now you're generally not gonna get the same multiple on a partial sale as you would on a full sale, right? That's part of the misnomer for advisors, which is like, Mm. well, I should get this multiple. It's like, well, you're not selling all of your business. You're selling part of your business, right? But let's just say, for example, that we negotiated somebody a 5X, which I know sounds like a crazy number to some people on here, but that means that you would get two and a half million dollars or basically you're getting five years forward revenue on that cash, right? And more if you think about the real net cash flow on 500,000. If you're running a 50% EBITDA, you're basically getting a, a 10 times forward on your EBITDA. If you're doing 250 of EBITDA, two and a half million is 10 times forwards earnings um, to buy that cash flow. But that revenue is now no longer part of your practice. You have to run your practice on the remaining 75% of the revenue. And you could certainly grow it back. Um, Sometimes that 25% can be cash. And sometimes it can be cash and and equity. Or sometimes you could just swap equity, meaning that I could take equity in a private equity firm that's been growing at a 30 to 40% CAGR, which is probably not as fast as my practice would grow in terms of the inherent stock value. Okay. Now the remaining 75%, there are a number of ways to exit out of it down the road. Remember, you generally run it, you control it. Doesn't mean you couldn't sell it to another firm. Doesn't mean you couldn't sell it to your advisors. Doesn't mean you couldn't give it to your kid. But some of them and some of these companies, Duncan, have the intention of going public. So what they will do, and I wanted to explain this because advisors generally haven't heard these terms, is they may do something called a drag tag model. And what that means is that if you sell 25% of your business, the drag is a requirement, meaning if you sell 25%, if there's a public event or the company recapitalizes, you would be required to sell another 25%. That's Mm. the drag. The tag would mean that you could, at your discretion, sell up to another 25%. So technically speaking, you could sell another 50% of the business. Imagine that the publicly traded stock went public at a 20 multiple of revenue. That 20 multiple of revenue would be passed down to you, generally speaking, or or quite a bit of it on the drag tag. So in this case, imagine, Duncan, that I said to you, hey, you might be able to get a 15 to 20 multiple on your business on revenue. What? I heard it's two times, three times. Some some guy or gal out there got six times. How am I going to get 20 times? Well, you are the IPO. You could get 20 times. That is just one example. But, you know, you know there there's actually two sides to this, Duncan, which is interesting. One is if you engage in a partial, you may ask, is it going to be a drag tag or what's going to happen to the rest of my stuff down the road? By the way, if you're recruiting people, and advisors generally have never thought about this. I'm giving away more than gold today. I got platinum today. You you could set up your own drag tag, meaning you could bring in a 1099 and say, yeah, you're a 1099, but when you get in here, you've got a licensing and service agreement with my practice, and we're going to do a drag tag, meaning when I sell, you have to sell, or when we sell a piece of it, you have to sell it. So we, we've never been trained to think of like creative business structures 
It's just not what we've done as advisors. Every conference, Duncan, in this industry is all about marketing, practice management, new products, where the marketing going. Mm -hmm. Business structure is incredibly important if you're thinking about intrinsically maximizing the enterprise enterprise value of your business. We just we've never been trained that way. This is and just kind of call you on something because isn't gold more valuable than platinum? I don't know. I don't even follow it. Is it? I don't know. I think I think you've got palladium above gold. I think rhodium <laughs> rhodium is the most precious precious metal. That's like your unobtainium. But you know, anyway, I've got this thing about precious metals, but that's just off to the side. That I'm means curious, I got duped, it means I got duped on my wedding ring because I think the guy told me platinum was was better than gold. That means I got duped somewhere thirty years ago, maybe at that time. Oh, that could have been. That could have yeah, been. Yeah, yeah. Rhodium. Okay, so question for you, because uh, that's that's incredible. I've never heard what you just described there. So that's Super that's sort of evolved from your immersion into the yes. space and working with teams. So that's very cool. And I'm I'm assuming your credibility and familiarity within the community mm. of of acquiring firms, these private equity firms, uh, has been amped up quite a bit too. But the the two things I wanted to ask you is. When these partial sales occur, uh, are there golden handcuffs associated with that? Is there an expectation it needs to go beyond 25%? Number one, you know, and number two. Everything, um, everything's in the negotiation, including change of control, or some of them have no change of control, <clears throat> including branding or not rebranding. Mm. You know, you 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 have a whole number of ways that you can do it, but I generally try to negotiate them where there's no golden handcuffs. Let's say it that way. Okay. So on that point, not only will you demystify for the advisor, so they're not reinventing the wheel, giving them them that clarity, but you'll also represent them as a conduit between them and the private equity firm who is acquiring? If they want me to, you know, I I can say that I'm probably like a human Zillow machine right now. So I, I could tell you what homes are selling in the neighborhood as good as anybody in this industry right now, there are obviously a lot of very seasoned, smart people in this industry, but those people are usually representative of their company. If you think about what you do as a fiduciary, when has there ever been an independent fiduciary that represents advisors when you try to maximize the enterprise value in your business? In fact, the worst thing you can do, and I'm gonna capitalize worst. I saw some note the other day, Duncan, from APBOE, which is just one of the bulletin boards where practices are buying, bought and sold. And they were all excited that they got a gigantic practitioner in Wisconsin, a 3.2 multiple on revenue. And it was a big practice. It was like a 3 million practice that sold for a little bit over 9 million. And I thought, man, that advisor probably paid APBOE and got ripped off. Don't If you go on these boards to sell your practice, you, you are making a huge mistake. You're just costing yourself millions of dollars, millions of dollars. And, and that's just probably awareness. They don't even know. I mean, it that, that opportunity probably exceeded their expectations based on what they know, but they didn't have the full picture in terms of the spectrum of opportunities that have emerged in the last three to five years. And uh, I, I want to come back to that in a second, because the other thing I wanted to ask you is, in your experience, if somebody has a partial sale, is there a change in the dynamic? Is there a micromanagement element? Does that firm impose itself on the <laughs> firm in terms of how does somebody conducts themselves or represents themselves? What changes? So, you know, there are both um, W-2 and 1099 partial deals. So it's a little bit bifurcated, but the the reality is on most of the 1099 deals, I'd say 90% of them, nothing changes in your business, right? <clears throat> your legal structure, your your brand name, you know, the systems that you're using, no one forces you to do portfolios. If you negotiate it right, nothing should change except that you de-risk and 25% or 18% or whatever of your revenue is going to somebody else. Have you ever considered launching your own podcast? Not sure how to start? Outsource it to the best in the business. We did. Our trusted partners at Proudmouth have a turnkey process to take care of everything. 
add predictability to your marketing efforts, visit them today at proudmouth.com. The best place to strengthen a client relationship is in the very place where you manage that relationship. BlueSquareToolkit.com has harnessed the best practices of Pareto systems and brought them to life in our easy to use system that is accessible on both your phone and your desktop. Simple technology to uncomplicate your life by creating clarity, accountability, and consistency for your entire team. Build stronger client relationships by tracking and archiving essential information on what matters in your client's life and make yourself indispensable and more referable in the process. Create a more consistent client experience and grow your business with the Blue Square Toolkit. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. So just thinking out loud here, if I'm an advisor, I'm assuming that there's three sort of dynamics to this. There's the ramp up, getting myself organized, positioning myself in terms of strength. Then there's the execution, actually getting the deal done. And then the dust settles. What are some of the outcomes? What does it look like after the dust settles? Yeah, And now the advisor gets on with his or her life. What are some of the unintended consequences? Yeah. What are some of the un, un, unspoken sort of positive outcomes, silver linings that came out of it all? Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I love the advisors that, you know, are doing 2 million of production today. They're 55 years old. They've been doing this business for 30 years. And we get into these conversations. They say, but Ted, I really think I'm going to double my business in the next three years. And I'm like, well, it took you 30 years to get to do $2 million and you're going to magically double it in, in three years. You know, that it is kind of funny. First and foremost, if you do this, you generally want to be thinking about how you pour gasoline on your practice. And, and uh, there's no doubt that whether you do a full sale or you do a partial sale, you you should have the roller skates on and you should be going more aggressively towards an end game. And uh, I, I think the the most advisors uh, should at that point be trying to scaling up marketing as fast as they can, you know, making sure that they've got generational transfers, meaning G2 or G3s that are inside of the practice, making sure everything is systematized and mechanized so you, if you're not there, it actually runs like a business, which you should be doing anyway, but all those things can happen. I've not seen any of these deals outside of branding where, where and, and every once in a while, portfolio management, where anything else is stuffed down your throat. Yes, some of these companies have a different CRM system. Some of them build it on Salesforce. Some of them, you know, will bastardize a piece of software online and create their own stuff. And some people say, we don't care if you do Redtail or Juncture or Wealthbox or whatever it is you want to use for a CRM system. But I think um, the biggest unintended piece is how it's going to affect your staff. And it's why the communication to your junior advisors and your staff is critical. It, it's okay, by the way, publicly traded companies always build contingency plans at the executive leadership level, always. And you need to basically remind your team, you're probably not going to be there forever. And you could be worried about your whole staff turning over, or you can get them excited to figure out a path to how to get them all engaged in the growth of the company. That's what publicly traded companies do. They give people stock in the company and they get them charged up for to grow top line revenue and EBITDA. We don't think that way, right? And so whether you do it through phantom stock or you're doing it through the way you're setting up the bonus structure and and Duncan's team is helping you, it's okay. One of the things Duncan and I worried about when I sold is, gosh, are all the clients going to leave? Are all the staff going to turn over? And, and in the end, 
what I'm finding is that nobody in there thought I was going to be there forever. They knew who I was. They're like, we didn't think you were going to be here forever. Even clients that I've talked to now four years later, they're like, we knew, Ted. We we knew that you were doing TV or you're an entrepreneur. You weren't going to be here forever. But they just wanted to make sure that the structure was there so they could get the same level of service, attention, management of their financial future. And as long as they're confident in that, great. But there's nothing wrong with you as an advisor, unless you love this business and you like 20 20 meetings a week talking about people's tomato garden and inflation and politics and all that stuff. That's great. Some people want to do it forever. But if you're a business person, you're thinking about your own exit, it's okay to discuss that. It's not like your team's going to walk out the door tomorrow. Well, it's such a good point. And yeah, I mean, the entrepreneurial paradox is you want to make yourself obsolete. You want to make sure that the business can run like a Swiss watch without you having to be present and not being at the mercy of any maverick talent because it's all process driven. And and of course, that just often creates a sense of liberation for the people because they're not winging it. And I know an interesting point on that is because you're covering a lot of ground here. Yeah. You don't wing it when you engage with an advisor to go down no. the path. You've got a very well-built-out, sequential, methodical process. And then you customize it based on their own aspirations, which is great. Back to your point, though. It's funny. I was talking to a team in Canada, actually, and we were talking about the bamboo tree, uh, bamboo tree metaphor. Because they their growth was very gradual. Uh, over 20 years, like the bamboo tree grows very slowly initially, and then it just catches and just explodes. And they had as much growth in a five-year window as they did in 20. They they got to that inflection point, they refined and optimized. So I'm what I'm curious about is when an advisor, in your experience, achieves that liberation, when they de-risk based on the partial sale, is there this sense of rejuvenation? where their purpose for their role is amplified, their excitement and enthusiasm for the role to make themselves attractive, to go out and grow. Does, does that, have you seen that happening? Cause I've seen it happen, but I'm wondering yeah. you're, you're <clears throat> deeper into this. What have you seen? I, I think it's like that, that age old adage. I think uh, it's largely euphoria and sometimes it's sadness. You know, the, the, uh, I think most advisors are rejuvenated and then you have the others that are relieved, right? The relief of I've had 30 years of doing this and I'm relieved that I'm not going to be the most responsible kid coming to school every day. And then you've got advisors that are like, I'm super charged up. I de-risked. It was like me. I got my money. And I mean, it's not that it's not so much that it didn't matter as much. It's just that that pressure of like, gosh, what if a client leaves? Gosh, what if this happens? You know, we feel that pressure all the time. And and I think it's a combination of reju- rejuvenation and relief. You know, we've got some clients who uh, work with professional athletes. And one advisor was telling me that he was introduced uh, to an athlete, pretty marquee. And his financial house was not in order. And he got introduced by a business manager or an agent or something. And the team, the advisory team, got it together, got the house all tidied up. And the impact that had in the performance of the athlete was striking. It's not like they became better as an athlete, but their mindset changed, knowing there wasn't this black cloud. And I'm wondering if that applies to advisors, too, is that it forces them to get things organized. Uh, They feel better because of that organization and structure. They de-risk, so now they they do have that work-optional lifestyle. And next thing you knew, they've got a bounce in their step again, and they're just more attractive in the marketplace, and the fish start jumping in the boat. So uh, oh, I, like I, think to it's see- to- I think it's totally true. I've had opportunities come at me here in Atlanta that, you know, uh, uh, I just think since I did this, uh, other doors have opened up. Um, you know, and, and there are other things that I got more interested in. I actually did some civic work here in Atlanta that I would have mm-hmm. never done. I don't think given, you know, what I was doing in the practice and that opened up more doors. And, uh, you know, sometimes Duncan, we lose our sense of purpose as advisors, even when you're making a million dollars a year, it's, it's rinse, repeat, go to work, do 20 meetings a week, make sure everything looks good. 
And, um, you know, we, we lose our sense of purpose. You know, uh, I, I wonder how many people listening to this that are in their 40s, late 40s, 50s, 60s are still super passionate about the business or do you just do it because you make a million bucks a year? And you can't get your head around if you got 10 million bucks today, is that better than making a million bucks a year? Sometimes that's hard because it's like, well, I, I can't take 10 million and give myself a million dollar income. And it's like, you know, and that's gets mm-hmm. people back into the grind of doing what they do. It's interesting you say that because I had a conversation with an advisor about plateau avoidance and, you know, his self-awareness was quite amped up as we were interacting in our consulting process. And yeah, he just said, like, I'm I'm kind of in a trance. I'm kind of mailing it in. And then he started going deeper into the business. And, and this is going to lead to a question for you because I, I don't know if you've seen this, but he he crossed through the interlude from the old way to this new way, massively rejuvenated. And now he's on the bird, he's now franchise ready. He's now scalable. So he is actively vetting opportunities to acquire businesses. Right. What he didn't realize is that that made him more energetic and, and valuable to his organic clients just because he had this new vitality. So my question for you is, if I'm an advisor and I de-risk and I have a partial sale and now I'm feeling really, really great and I still have aspiration, I've got a lot of gas in the tank and I now I want to go out and acquire a business and I want to monetize on my process. I want to attract more advisors to have more scale. Does that strengthen their case? I'm assuming it does. If they want to go from 25 to 50 down the road, are they further in the driver's seat? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's actually the time to scale. If you sell a partial piece and you can figure out how to buy practices or you know, recruit advisors into your fiefdom, you can make it even more valuable on most of these partial sales when you decide to liquidate other pieces of the business. At the same token, you could just call it a de-risk, right? Let's say you got eight or 10 times forward earnings, let that cash sit in the bank as like part of your retirement plan and just go grow the hell out of the rest of the practice, right? And give it to your kids or whatever it is. So there's not a a definitive, you have to do this or that, but yes, if you could scale buying practices and doing those other things as you sold a partial sale, there's a good chance that you would get a heavy duty multiple on the remainder of the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. So I'm curious about your sort of bedside manner when you engage with somebody initially. Is part of your process to really help them get clear around where they are on the spectrum between contentment and ambition? Like, do you help them think that through? Like, okay, you're going to de-risk, you're going to feel great, and you're just going to stick with your organic business, and, and that's great. Or... Do you help them come to terms with the fact that, you know what, maybe I do want to go out and acquire a business or attract advisors to adopt my process? Like, do you get into that in the early stages of your interactions? I mean, this is uh, 30 years of experience of doing financial planning for clients. This process looks a little bit different, but not that much different, right? There's that initial meeting to understand goals and objectives, understand both the facts and the feelings. And then make a determination if there there is a vision for the kind of plan that the advisor wants for their future. And if they don't know what it is, can we help them flesh out what makes sense for them? Continuity-wise, family-wise, business-wise, some people have real estate, some people don't in their practice. And then when we sign an engagement, you know, in general, or if I do an engagement, you know, we're not charging consulting fees, right? You know, in general, things would be success-based. And that means mm-hmm. that we, we, we've we got to help somebody get over the finish line. And I just say in advance, you know, sometimes advisors can freak out because if they sold their business for 30 million, and I'm just making this up, but if you paid me 3 million, you might go $3 million. That's crazy. Okay. But could you have gotten 27 million on your own? The odds are you could not, right? You know, you have to know every nook and cranny in the English muffin in order to be able to get it. And and that's key. And then Duncan, it's important that we really understand the practice, the the legal contracts in the practice, 
We almost always have to help the advisors clean up their financials. Hardly ever do I see a redacted set of financials that look good. And then, you know, um, much like you would think about in a real business, creating that confidential information memorandum on the business to take to all of the potential suitors, right? And then you got to have the initial meetings to find out, you know, if we go on a first date, is there a culture fit to even get to a second date? If you get to a second date, you get a little deeper into the practice. And then, you know, you get NDA signed, you exchange financials, and then you go through a process of trying to get to a deal deck or an offer or a term sheet to say, is this, does this make sense? Negotiations ensue. You get to an indication of interest or a letter of interest. Once you sign that, it's always non-binding, meaning if due diligence goes badly either way, it's not going to happen. And then you try to get through due diligence and get to a, a close date. So it's a nine-month process, Duncan. I Rarely have I seen things six months, maybe if it was lickety split a year often, but not nine months to a year. So if you're thinking about it, it's not like you're just going to go across the street, talk to Duncan. He's going to write you an $18 million check, and it's, it's, it's not going to work that way. Back to your fee worthiness. I'm assuming a big part of it is the fact that you're not out there shopping or marketing the business publicly. You've got relationships yeah. with these acquiring firms. So this can all mm-hmm. be done very discreetly. And it's not a pitch. It's just a conversation based on fit and merit. That's a profound impact right. on your fee worthiness. I'm I mean, saying. number one, Duncan, this doesn't go on like biz buy sell. That's what we're talking about, right? We're not putting it on the MLS listing system. Two is you may have engaged with a company that said that they wanted you. And the thing is, if you don't know all the information, you don't know what deals they've cut. What if I was to tell you today that one of the biggest broker dealers in the entire planet would buy your whole practice today. And if you stay for 13 years as an employee, they give it back to you. What? So the thing is, Duncan, if you're not in the market, right? This is like, why do you hire a real estate agent? You know, Um, because hopefully they're in your neighborhood. They're in your market. They know what's sold, what hasn't sold. So you can price this appropriately and get it sold. Without being in the market every day, you're going to get taken advantage of because you're not going to know where to fill air in the balloon, where the nooks and crannies are. I mean, and the thing is, it's like, as an advisor, here's a question to ask yourself. Are you worth the 1%? Are you worth the 1%? One could argue if somebody just bought an S&P 500 fund and they never had you, they would do better. But we all know there's so much that goes with the emotions of when people would pull money and when they would leave money and what happens in good markets and bad markets, these Vanguard studies that have gone on forever. So of course you're worth the 1%, although we're challenged on it all day. So you can't be cheap when you hire somebody and be like, well, I don't want to pay you. You know, People have been paying you for years. We could argue it all day long. You're worth it and we're worth it. And that's why we do it. Yeah, I love it. And I, what I love since we, you and I have been talking about this over, I guess it's now a couple of years, it's not this recycled conversation. You keep upping your game. And I'm assuming that's just experiential knowledge and wisdom coming from being in the trenches with people who are actually getting it done. It, there's a reason professional athletes get an agent, right? You know, there's a reason they get an agent. You know, there are a couple that have tried to set up their own entities, right? But very few because they know the marketplace. They know what the the Lakers are going to offer. They know what the Celtics are going to offer. They know what the Canadians or the Bruins are going to offer. They, they know these things. I I am in this every single day, learning, looking, seeing things. And I'm in your neighborhood, right? And so I've seen all the homes. I've been through them all. I know what the basements look like. I know what the, the pool house looks like. I, I know what they all look like. And so these folks can't fool me. You can't fool me when I have all the information. Um, the bigger thing, Duncan, is that we also know where capital is moving. If I use an example, Duncan, annuity companies would always offer bonus programs. And they do that to bring in new assets, just like banks offer teaser CDs to bring deposits into the bank. But that only lasts for a short period of time, and then the money dries up. The capital markets are no different, right? If you have 100 companies vying for practices, people go in and out of having slugs of capital. You need to know when the capital is there, because to your point, Duncan, 
it, it, it's it's if it's not used, it's losing pace to inflation. It's like dry gunpowder. If you if, if they don't put it to work, they're losing money for their investors. So you've got to know when people have capital because if they get a hundred million dollar slug, it's going to go quickly. But that's when you can increase the multiple, even in a high interest rate environment. I got to tell you, on the topic of fee worthiness, I had a client that I've known for a long time. And I forgot about this, but we were talking about fee worthiness based on commoditization. I had told him a long time ago that um, sort of parable, the, the story about the plumber who was called in to fix a rattling pipe that was driving the homeowners crazy. And uh, he walked in, diagnostic, figured it out, took out his hammer smack the pipe, rattling stops, takes out his invoice book and says $40 for hitting the pipe, $400 for knowing where to hit. <laughs> when I told the advisors mirroring this back on me not long ago, I told him this probably 10 years ago, but he said, I get it now. Like just that, that making sure clients understand what you're worth, not what you cost is so uh, incredibly profound. So anyway, and thanks for the hockey reference there too, by the way, with the Bruins and Canadians. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, so we're just scratching the surface, but I know you've got a process built out. It's refined, it's optimized. If I'm an advisor and I'm going to sort of opt in, what's my next step? What should I do? I think the easiest thing is go to that website you mentioned in the beginning, sellyouraum.com. Just mention that you heard us on the Always On podcast. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we'll just have an initial conversation because you may decide to do nothing right now. That's okay. You may decide you want to kick the tires. You know, that's okay. Listen, there's no better business valuation than actually putting your house for sale because you're going to find out what it's worth. These valuations that are done by companies, and I'll leave them all nameless, they all come out saying your practice is worth one times commission and two to three times recurring revenue. I guess you could use that, Duncan, for a life insurance policy and a buy-sell agreement, but it really has zero relevance to you selling your business if you actually want to make money on your business, unless you're going to sell it to the person down the street. And I'm not telling you that that's a bad thing. It's just not going to maximize the multiples in your business. So sellyouraum.com is the best place to start. Okay, great. And I'm just curious, if I'm an advisor and I go from intent to consent, so I kick my tires, I go through the due diligence and I say, let's go, let's do mm -hmm. this. How do I represent that to my clients? Like, do I tell them that I'm doing this? How do I position it? No, I, I don't think in the initial stages, you're really telling anybody, right? That's why we have confidentiality, non-disclosure agreements. I mean, you're you're merely you're merely just trying to see what the marketplace looks like, you know, if you engage and you get to a letter of interest or something like that, then maybe conversations internally might make sense and uh in some cases you might not have to repaper or rebrand and so there may be very little conversation you have to have with clients because not that much might change for them. When I did mine there was no repaper no rebranding, all the change for clients is who is going to become their day-to-day -day servicing person. Nothing else changed for them, not their statements, not the website. So it's premature to have those conversations until you know what the outcome may be. But then after the dust settles, if I do see it through to the end, I'm assuming I can position it with clients around getting out in front of continuity and secession issues and uh, being in a position where I can elevate the client experience. I mean, those types of um, talking points and phraseology, that, that that's appropriate? I think almost everybody in this industry has moved w at least once. Um, and when you did, like, I know repapering is like the most awful thing in the world to go through, but you gave a story to your clients. We're moving from this wirehouse to this wirehouse, this broker dealer to this broker dealer, or I'm going hybrid RIA or my own RIA. And you had a story about why it makes sense. So I'm just going to say for the record that I think pretty much everybody listening to this can probably come up with a compelling reason for clients why it's in their best interest, because you've probably done it before. Yeah, well said. Good point. And um yeah, I mean, if it's all positioned as a benefit to the client, usually it's also revealing and confirming that 
based on the strength of the relationship, the client's going to say, hey, Ted, whatever you think, I trust you. That's true. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so sellyouraum.com. That's a great place to start. Follow Ted on LinkedIn. Essential follow. Such great stuff. And across the entire board within the industry. And um, yeah, let me know how it goes because I've had nothing but positive feedback from the advisors uh, who have told us what it's like to interact with you. So kudos, you're doing a great job and thanks for being here. And we'll have you back uh, sooner than later, I'm sure. Thanks for having me on. Everybody listening, I'm a big fan of yours. You know, I did it all these years. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you are overpaid and underworked. This is one of the hardest businesses in the world, both personally and from a regulatory perspective. And uh, just get surround yourself with great people. And and uh, in these kinds of markets, when it's uh, there are a lot of turmoil, I've always felt it's the best time to market. So market away right now to bring in new money. Very well said. Okay, Ted, take it easy. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.